Hi everyone, from Impact Alpha Media, this is Returns on Investment, a show about the impact investing marketplace. Live from New York, on tape, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. With me, as always, is Imogen Rose Smith, a senior writer with Institutional Investor Magazine. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us by the magic of podcast technology, Impact Alpha Editor-in-Chief David Bank, who's joining us from Berkeley, California. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. Hi, Imogen. Hi. On today's show, we're going to unpack the global goals, also known as the Sustainable Development Goals, or for those who love UN speak, the SDGs. David, are you down with SDGs? I'm down. Imogen, are you down with SDGs? <laughs> Will you take the, the bait? What's the joke? What's the joke? <laughs> You're supposed to say, yeah, you know me. Yes, I'm not going to say <laughs> Okay, do it again. Do it again. All right, David, are you down with the SDGs? Yeah, you know me. <laughs> okay. This is awful. Uh, okay, well, no one is hiring us to do any kind of music. So these uh, global goals, the SDGs, are the ambitious targets that world leaders adopted back in 2015 for what they believe the world of 2030 should look like. The global goals are, are emerging as a kind of universal framework, not only for governments and philanthropists, but for investors as well. And they're really ambitious end poverty on all its forms, provide universal education, health care, and access to clean water for everyone. There's 17 of these goals total. David, can you help unpack them for us? Where do they come from and why do they matter? Well, they're the follow-ons to what were called the Millennium Development Goals, which ran from 2000 to 2015. And I'm old enough to remember when those things were adopted uh, back at the Millennium, uh, nobody thought they you know, were realistic at all. They were seen as, seen as completely utopian. And in fact, the world made remarkable progress between uh, by 2015. And we didn't hit all of those goals, but we made major progress towards most of them. And it, it shocked people into how useful they were as a common framework. So back in the halcyon days in 2015, when the world could agree on anything, uh, the UN and world leaders adopted these goals. And uh, these are our uh, much more ambitious than the Millennium Development Goals. Significantly, they cover developed countries as well as developing countries. So they're supposed to be seen not just as a kind of developing world uh, framework, but as a whole world framework. And the other part of it, frankly, that was important is that they do envision a very significant role for private capital, not just foreign aid and um, and and philanthropy. So, you know, we're off and running. I think what's significant is that there just now is kind of agreement on a set of goals. And then there's this whole cottage industry developing around tracking them and measuring them and what does it all mean? So we can get into all that. But um, I would say the SDGs are on. So Imogen, these global goals uh, are, you know, they, they were born out of the UN. Uh, they were born out of that jargon-filled acronym-filled, process-filled uh, organizational body known as the United Nations. Um, but they seem to be gaining traction outside of the, that, that kind of traditional world of official international development. What are you hearing from institutional investors about the SDGs, about the global goals? So first of all, we have to stop calling them the SDGs because nobody knows what you're talking about and it sounds like a sexually transmitted disease. So, you know, I think that within the Not world, the STDs. Yes, right. I know. But within, you know, back in the real world, it's exactly the problem with the sort of jargon-filled UN 
process, PowerPoint bullets to do whatever, who cares? So, you know. Because institutional investors, because institutional investors never use any jargon. No, right? exactly. And so I've had it beaten out of me. You guys don't get to put in more jargon, especially, as I say, when it sounds offensive. So, and that is like, that is what is alienating about these kind of processes, just in the same way that that's what's alienating about finance or any of these kind of closed communities when you start speaking with your own jargon and your own language. So the sustainable development goals, as we call them back in institutional investing land, do however have, have had a surprisingly large amount of resonance with the investment community at large. Um, and I think it's worth taking a step back to really sort of spell out what we're talking about, about here. Like, what are the goals? Broadly speaking, you know, they're talking about ending, tackling climate change, tackling income inequality and poverty. Um, so dealing with these massive macro issues. And I think from, so, you know, you can go through the, the, the 17 and some of them have uh, seem a lot less tangible to institutional investors than others. So for example, you know, achieving equality for women and girls, women and girls, very important goal, very significant, you know, is an issue that is talked about in investing from a diversity perspective, but doesn't have sort of a tangible, doesn't have much of a tangible macroeconomic field. You could talk about hey, how women are going to become more significant consumers and it's, and have a greater role in finance and things like that, but it's not as immediately tangible as, for example, um, food systems, right? And the need to move towards more secure food systems and the changes in how people are eating and the impact that that is going to have on the global economy. So the reason that you're seeing investors, you know, from large asset managers like BlackRock to sort of the Dutch pension systems and a lot of different types of investors in between grab onto these goals and sort of understand them in a way that no one was talking about the millennial goals is that these are talking about large macro trends that are happening that investors are seeing generally that is just being put into the sort of UN context. I think that's right. I mean, we've been just hearing at Impact Alpha this kind of drumbeat of announcements every day. You know, there's, as you mentioned, Dutch and Swedish pension funds have a whole framework. Uh, Silicon Valley venture funds are saying that every uh, pitch has to hit at least one sustainable development goal. There's a, a city in the Philippines that wants to be known as the leading, you know, sustainable development goal city in the world. A, a, a fisheries company, you know, just said, we, we, you know, we're down with the life underwater and, and other sustainable development goals. So everybody is rushing to get on board to align themselves with the sustainable development goals. The question now, I think, is what does that alignment mean, A, like what do you actually do as opposed to just say you support it, and B, where does the financing come to actually implement the very, very large-scale um, initiatives that are required? I mean, people talk about something on the order of five or six or seven trillion dollars a year, and there's clearly not enough public capital you know, from governments, certainly not foreign aid, which is a tiny fraction of that to finance all of that. So the, the big question really is, who's going to pay for it? And, and one of the things, one of the issues in impact investing as a field in general is that too often impact is in the eye of the beholder. So how do these global goals provide a more universal frame of reference for those trying to uh, tackle 
and measure and define and articulate how their investments are having an impact. Well, I think one of the advantages, right, is they come with an inbuilt timeline. So already you have a definable box that you're putting, putting something in. So you're saying we need to tackle global warming by 2030. So whatever investment I'm making has to be within the, the parameters of that. And we know, by the way, that we have to do something about it or we're all going to be dead, right? So that, that gives you an immediacy and a timeline that you can then work through. The other, the other part of it is just a simple taxonomy. I mean, you can know who is working on SDG, Sustainable Development Goal 7, which is about universal en- access to energy, and all of the folks who are tackling off-grid solar in Africa and you know, early-stage climate innovation and smart grids and, other th- and, and battery storage all are kind of organizing themselves around Sustainable Development Goal 7. And, S- and Sustainable Development Goal 3 is around healthcare. And so the healthcare folks get organized. And as Imogen said, there are, you know, the OECDs and McKinsey's and Brookings and everybody of the world are churning out white papers to, to measure all this stuff. So there's at least starts to become you know, just uh, just self-organizing groups and uh, and affinity groups working on the same thing. And one of the things that I think is really effective is that that breaks down the... That gets away from the problem that I think is one of the things that really holds sort of impact back and some of these causes back, which is the siloing, right? So you have all these different people in different pockets, you know, the institutional investors, the solar people, the impact people, the activists, the green energy people, the government people. You know, I think this is one of the big problems with the the climate change COP process, right? So you have all these different peoples in different silos who don't speak each other's language and don't have a way to come together. The sustainable development goals, possibly because of the way they're set up, seems to be getting around that. That, you know, I might be a venture capitalist and I might be into solar. I can go hang out with the energy people and there I might come across some government people who will really help me develop my solar project project, and I might come across some really rich people who might want to invest and I might come across some pension funds. So you're actually pulling all of these people together. But it, there, there are now, there are 17 goals and, uh, you know, I, I, without looking at them, could you, how many of them do you think you can name, Imogen or David? David has to be the expert on this. I can do women I and had, girls. I already, I already called out number three and number seven. <laughs> That's because you're cheating number and looking at the list, gen- though. And Brian no, is also number looking five at is gender is gender equality. Um, or, and and number seventeen is kind of the catch-all because that's exactly what Imogen just said. Seventeen is the cooperation and partnership and 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 better data and and get us all organized. So if you. Uh, if you just want to be on the coordination part of it, just stick with 17, which is kind of under, uh, uh, unsung because it's not as tangible in terms of like food systems and whatnot. I also want to give a shout out to number 14, the conservation one. I think that's a particularly important one that um, is sometimes overlooked. Well, it's conservation for life below. Exactly. So everybody will have their... Everybody can have their favorite, their favorite goals. The real flip that has to happen here, though, as we were saying, is that... Even now, even even in this so-called new thinking around the sustainable development goals, there still is a tendency to talk about the financing gap, and there still is a tendency to think about it as a public budgeting and philanthropy problem, which it clearly is. But that's why I but sort the, of disagree with you, because I think what is su- surprising 
is how willing the for-profit and private sector has been to embrace this this conversation and these goals and this language, both from the institutional investor and allocator and money manager side and the corporate side. So, so yeah. I don't necessarily yeah. think they see themselves as filling that gap per se, but they certainly see these, these as investment opportunities, which really comes down to the same thing. The difference, of course, is they're going to pick and choo choose their opportunities based on where they think the money is. So, for example, for some, not some weird reason, but a lot of investors are into land mitigation. This idea of like, you know, purifying the water and land and stuff. Why? Because they actually think that's somewhere they can make money. So if you talk to them more broadly about like water issues, you know, getting water to Africa is not something that they're necessarily going to step up and want to do. But if you talk about some of these very niche areas where they think, okay, there's not a lot of downside and there's a huge amount of potential upside, the chances are they're going to do it. Or at least be interested that, in it. That, that was exactly where I was going, Imogen. <laughs> was that, that, that flipping the narrative from that foreign aid and, and, and public finance framework to a private investment framework and it doesn't I'm just saying it doesn't exclude the public finance part of it but to include the private finance is a is a big shift for the development world and there's a lot of work going on about identifying the scale of the opportunities for these challenges there was a report called better business better world that said uh, just for these areas um, could offer $12 trillion in cost savings and revenues. That's an investment opportunity in energy, cities, food, uh, food and agriculture and health. And uh, somebody like Arif Nakvi from, from Abraj, which is a big emerging markets uh, private equity investor, said basically these are the big challenges where the big opportunities for growth are in the global economy in the next, in the next coming decades. So I think what's happening is that the uh, convergence of this development need and the investment opportunities is, you know, potentially very exciting. And so is it, is it truly that, that investors are now looking and learning about these global goals and realizing, oh, I, I had no idea I could make money in that way. Let me look into these different areas and, and figure out how I can find investable opportunities. Or is it investors had investments they were going to make anyways, and now they have uh, something that they can, uh, a, a commonly agreed upon framework on which they can map their previously uh, anticipated or previously planned investment uh, strategies and plans. I think it's more, uh, basically I think it's more of the latter. I think that, you know, what, what do investors do? They look for places that they can make money. How do you identify where to make money? Well, you look for inefficiencies and you look for sort of big trends, right? And so... No, you could argue, okay, I see a big opportunity in coal investing, right, over the next four months. You know, Donald Trump is going to, like, you know, bring back coal. That's a great opportunity. On the other hand, I might also argue that I see a great opportunity in uh, wind power, right? I, as an investor, am agnostic on, you know, this has always been the problem. I am agnostic on the ethics of my investment. I might even be agnostic over the you know, long-term sustainability of my investment depending on my time horizon. However, I see these massive trends coming down the pipeline. I also see governments and other organizations lining up in support of those trends. Suddenly, that looks like an interesting opportunity, and these goals that are sort of supporting it 
potentially mitigate some of my downside risk. But is it is it so? I, I can understand how the global goals make sense for a a true institutional investor, a long term investor, a pension fund, uh, an endowment, uh, some some asset manager that is managing assets for uh, a 10, 20, 30 year time horizon where they know they're going to have beneficiaries that they have to pay out to decades in the future. And so they want to make sure that there is part of their fiduciary responsibilities, making sure that there is a, a world 20 years in the future that, that, that still exists. That's not necessarily an agreed upon assumption, but yes. <laughs> okay, just just play with me. It plays play out. So how, how, do, how does this map, though, for, you know, do the global goals align with not just the long-termism, but short-termism as well. You know, can you have a global, yeah, a global I mean, goals look, day trader as opposed to a, a long-term you investor? You probably can't have a global goals day trader, but as a rule, kids, you shouldn't be day trading anyway. Um, you probably, you're, you're probably not going to care about, the, and you're probably not going to care about the global goals if you're, you know, a quant creating like systems right now. Um, although there is some interesting stuff being done around climate change. Um, but I think it's, it, it's too simplistic to sort of have a binary construct between the long-term asset owners and shorter-term investors, because long-term asset owners need to, make, need to make money over the short term. They're investing in a whole bunch of different types of funds that have different time horizons, and they mostly get paid on an annual basis and reviewed against their peers. So you know, they have a whole different set of objectives. And the point is that all of these things are going to have, a lot of these things are going to have money-making opportunities along the way. It's not just like, you know, setting your pension fund to auto and plugging, you know, auto drive or whatever, and plugging it in for the next 30 years, and that's what's going to happen, right? It's how do I make returns along the way? And I think what's exciting people about these goals, again, is that they do see the potential to make money in, I'd say, new agriculture systems. Like changing how we fish, whatever it is. There's a lot of pockets of opportunities that exist. And now all investment I is... Think, I, I think that's right. And I think, I think in, a, in a sense, it's just the same uh, formula that, you know, tech VCs have used for a long time, which is big challenges are big opportunities. And, you know, we've been seeing just a, a steady stream of food tech investments and ag tech investments and ed tech investments. And a lot of these things are in fact going to be tech-driven solutions, and those are, you know, immediate opportunities to build big companies, and uh, and people are finding the, the the ways to frame them, as you said, Brian, around the SDGs, but that also does bring in partners and subsidies and incentives and other things, as Imogen said. So the fact that, you know, the don't downplay just the organizing principle aspect of it. So to conclude, David, are you down with the SDGs? You know me. <laughs> that was a fail. Imogen, Imogen, are you down with the SUGs? No. There is no good way that I can answer that. Are you down with the global goals? I am down with the global goals, yes. Okay, I know that about you. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you, Imogen. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, David. <laughs> thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> If you like the show, be sure to rate us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at Impact Alpha. For more on the emerging impact investing market, be sure to, to subscribe to Impact Alpha's daily email newsletter at impactalpha.com. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. On behalf of David Bank and Imogen Rose-Smith, 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking again soon.